Okay, Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Luke writes, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Lord, we ask as we recall the words of Paul to these elders that they would have meaning and life and power and usefulness to us today. Open them up to our hearts and mind, Lord, and help us to apply them. Lord, simply because we're not all elders in this room doesn't mean that you don't have a word for us today. So speak to us, Lord, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, there was a missionary who had selflessly labored with his wife in Africa for over 40 years. And he got sick. He had to return to the United States. He could no longer serve on this mission. And so he's coming back on the ship, and he just happens to be on the same ship as Teddy Roosevelt, who had been over to Africa on a hunting safari. And when they arrived back at the dock, it seemed like all the country turned out to meet them. There was dozens of reporters snapping photos and wanting to interview the president. And the missionary was a little bit upset by all of this. Yeah, he, he was indulging a little bit of self-pity. And he turns to his wife and says, we labor for over 40 years. We come back to America and there's nobody here to greet us. But here the president goes over on a hunting safari. He comes home and the whole country's there to greet him. And his wife turns to him and she says very wisely, but honey, we're not home yet. She was thinking about her eternal home. And there was a lot of wisdom in what she said to her husband that day. Because as believers, we're not home yet. And when we do arrive home, that's when the greeting, that's when the reward, that's when the internal inheritance is going to be ours. So I think what we find summarized here in verses 32 to 38 is that the the believer, especially the elders that Paul was talking to, should not be living for time for for now for this life but for the life to come and that's what I want to focus with you on today is living in light of eternity living in light of the world to come rather than just for time and sense now recall the context this is our final message in Acts chapter 20 so let me just briefly go over what's been happening Paul is reminded of the elders of Ephesus of his ministry among them so that that would be an example to them. And then he taught the elders about having this commitment to do the will of God. This unrelenting, faithful commitment to do the will of God. And then he charges the elders to shepherd the flock. We saw that last week. And then today we're going to watch how Paul instructs the elders to live in light of eternity. And you might be saying, well, Brian, why do you say that Paul's instructing these elders to live in light of eternity? The word eternity is not even found in this paragraph. Well, that's true, but the word inheritance is found. 
And that's what I want you to key in on. Verse 32, it says, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. See, that word inheritance is important. And that's why I've, I printed out these scriptures for you and put them on, the, on the, your chairs. If you want to just lift that up and look at it for a moment, I want to rapid fire just read to you the verses in the New Testament that speak about the Christian's inheritance. I'm not going to comment on them. I'm just going to read them. Okay? So Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 19, 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 1.11 says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Hebrews 1.14, speaking about angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Hebrews 6.12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And 1 Peter 1.4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Okay, so from all those passages, what do we learn about the Christian's inheritance? Well, it's referred to as the earth. No doubt this is the new earth that he's describing. It's described as eternal life, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, salvation, the promises. And then how is it described? It's something we are predestined for. It is glorious in its riches. It is eternal. It is imperishable, undefiled, it will not fade away, and is reserved in heaven for us. So this is something that the Christian looks forward to in the life to come. The promises, eternal salvation. So when Paul tells him in verse 32 that the word of his grace is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance, Paul is causing them to look forward to something that God is going to bring into their experience in the future. Jesus even said when he returns, that's when he's going to call his sheep to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Now, so as we look at verses 32 to 38, there are three things that a person who is heavenly minded or a person who is 
um, living in light of eternity, there are three things that they'll pursue. Number one, the word of God. Number two, a sanctified life. And number three, faithful stewardship. And that's what he opens up to them. And that's what he's encouraging these elders to pursue. And it doesn't matter if you're an elder or not. These are three things that you as a Christian should be pursuing. The word of God, a sanctified life, and faithful stewardship. So let's look at those three ideas that Paul brings out in this passage. First of all, the Christian, the elder, should be pursuing the word of God. Because he says in verse 32, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. There we have it, the word of his grace. And that word of his grace is able to build you up, and it's able to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now think about that word commend. He says, now I commend you to God. What is he talking about? What does it mean to commend something? Yeah, it basically means to entrust. I'm entrusting you to God and I'm entrusting you to the word of his grace so that God and the word of his grace will be able to do something in your life. Now, The flock is entrusted to the care of the elders. They're to take care of that flock. But into whose care are the elders entrusted? Right? The flock is entrusted to them. Who takes care of the elders? Who cares for them? Who are they entrusted to? To God. That's right. To Christ. And if the elders shepherd the flock, who shepherds the elders? Well, I think verse 32 tells us that God... The elders are entrusted to God and to the word of God's grace. And God and the word of his grace is able to build them up and to give them the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So what we find here is Paul telling these elders, you need the word of God's grace in your life to do what, what nobody else can do. Only God can do this. And he does it through his word. Now think about that, the word of his grace. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. What is he talking about? What is the word of his grace? Well, Paul used another phrase earlier in verse 24. He says there, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And there we have the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 32, the word of his grace. I think those, those two ideas, those two phrases are very similar to each other. The word of God's grace probably is looking back to the gospel of the grace of God in verse 24. So he's speaking about the gospel, the good news of what God has done to save sinners. So God and the gospel, the word of his grace, the, the really core of the word of God is the gospel of the grace of God. Those things are able to build up these elders and they're able to give them the inheritance that God has provided for them. So these elders are probably thinking, Paul's getting ready to leave and he doesn't think he's coming back. We don't think we're ever going to see him again. How are we going to survive the onslaughts of the devil when Paul's gone? How are we going to be able to maintain our faith in Jesus Christ to the end? How are we going to be able to know the will of God for the congregation that we take care of and shepherd? How are we going to be able to persevere to the very end without falling away? And Paul tells them, 
I'm commending you. I'm entrusting you to God and to the word of his grace. That's how. God will do it through his word. That is sufficient to, keep, to take care of you and to provide everything that you need from now till you get to glory. So let's, let's just apply that for a minute. If it was true for the elders of Ephesus in Paul's day, it's true for us too. How are you going to persevere to the end? How are you going to overcome the attacks of the enemy in your life? All the things that come against a Christian between the time he's saved and the time he gets to heaven, how are you going to survive? How are you going to do it? Can we, can we read verse 32? Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to do the things we need. So Christian, you need the word of God's grace just as much as anybody, just as much as these Ephesian elders needed it in order for you to persevere to the end and to be with Christ in glory. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And just as a man is absolutely dependent on food to maintain his physical life, you and I are absolutely dependent upon God's word for our spiritual life. So let me just ask you a question. Um... How often do, do you folks go a day without eating anything? How often is that? Once a week? Okay, Scott says once a week for him. You're probably the exception to the rule, I'm guessing. <laughs> do any of us regular, do we fast every single week? Probably not. I, why don't we do that? Because we get hungry, right? We want to satisfy our hunger. Um, so what I want to ask you is, well, why would you be willing to go a day without the word of God if you won't go a day without food? Do you think that your soul is less important to you than your body? We must. We must really think that. Is it true? Is your soul less important than your body? Is your relationship to Christ less important than your being satisfied with food? So I, I, we all know the answer to those questions, but we don't live like we believe the truth of that. So I want to encourage you, be just as committed, if not more so, to the Word of God than you are to eating three meals a day. Uh, Ray Comfort likes to say, uh, what does he say? No, no Bible, no breakfast. <laughs> so he doesn't eat breakfast until he spent time in the Word because his soul is more important than his body to him. So a daily intake of scripture is the way God has designed for us to maintain our daily communion and our fellowship with him. And did you know that the scripture promises eternal glory only to people who persevere to the end? Those who persevere to the end shall be saved. It doesn't matter how quickly you start the Christian life, but if you give up on the Christian life, you know, you're in this race and uh, you treat it like a sprint, and you get winded and fall down and say, I'm done. I'm, I'm. Well, you're, you're not going to win the prize. You're not going to finish the, the finish line. God has called us to, to, for the marathon, the long haul. The, the rest of our life, we will be serving Jesus Christ and following him. And in order to do that, we need God's word every single day to strengthen us for the race that he's called us to run. 
This is what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, isn't that interesting? If you pay close attention to your teaching, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you, but for yourself as well. In other words, the elder has to practice what he preaches. He has to pay close attention to what he's teaching. He has to put it into practice in his life. And friends, you do too. I do too. All of us need to do that. And we won't be able to do that unless we are committed to having the Word of God transform our lives. Psalm 1 verse 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So do you want to be a blessed man? Do you know what the word blessed means? Happy. Do you want to be a happy person? You need to spend time delighting in God's word. There's no shortcut for this. There is absolutely none for it. This needs to actually be the top priority of our life. Now, when I say that, what I really mean is communion with Christ needs to be the top priority of every Christian's life. And the best way for us to commune with Christ is in his word and prayer. So I, I just want to encourage you, don't, don't, let your, don't let your eating your three meals a day be more of a priority than fellowship with Christ. It ought not be that way. We would never dream, would we, of just, I'm just not going to show up for work today. I think I'll just take a day off. I'm not going to call anybody. I'm just, I'm just going to stay in bed. I'm not going. <laughs> but how many of us might not spend time with God for days on end, maybe even weeks on end, maybe even months, where we just kind of get into a slump and we just don't seek the Lord? It ought not to be that way. Would any one of us just decide, well, I'm just going to leave my family. I'm not saying a word. I'm just taking off, and I'll be back in a week, and they'll, they, can, <laughs> they can see me when I get back in a week. Well, that would be crazy. But as Christians, don't we, haven't you, perhaps at times, just kind of ignored the Lord or neglected the Lord and just took off and did your own thing? See, this is craziness when we really think about it. We wouldn't do that to an employer. We wouldn't do it to our family, but we might do it to our God, our creator. And he might, he's far more important than anything else in life. He's more important than our job. He's more important than our families. He's, there's nothing more important than our relationship to God. Do you folks realize how easy we have it today? We probably don't. But for 1,500 years, almost nobody had their own copy of the Bible. From the time of Christ to the time the printing press was invented in the late 1400s, people didn't have a Bible. I mean, it was very rare. They, they were all hand copied. And so the copies of the Bible were rare, and they were very expensive, and only a few people were, could afford to have their own copy of the Bible. On top of that, I just read this morning, I, I hope this is accurate, but I googled it. I said, how many people were literate 
in the dark ages? And the answer coming back to me was less than 20%. So less than one out of five people could read or write if that, if that statistic was accurate. So even if they had a Bible, they probably couldn't read it. So do you realize how privileged you are to be able to have this you own it. You can have, you can read it whenever you want to. You don't have to wait to church for the, the priest in those days to stand up and read the gospels. And then you try to remember that all week long. And that's what you fed your soul on all week. Cause you couldn't just go to the Bible. You didn't have one. You didn't have access to it. We are so privileged today for the last 500 years since the printing press was invented, you can have your own copy of the Bible. And in fact, I've probably got three or four of them in my house, probably maybe more than that. We've all got multiple copies of the Bible. But does it sit on your shelf collecting dust from Sunday to Sunday? Maybe you pick it up on Sunday and bring it to church, but you never open it in, the, in between. Folks, this should be our daily companion. God should be speaking to you every day from his word. And I'm just, I'm just wanting to exhort you to make this priority. If it's not, change your priorities. Make, make a decision today that this is going to be my life. I'm going to commune with Christ and he's given me this beautiful word of God and I'm going to take advantage of it. I'm going to take advantage of it. So may God help us really to take advantage of his word in our life. So the very first thing Paul exhorts these elders is to give themselves to the word of God's grace. The second thing he exhorts them to do is to pursue a sanctified life because he tells them in verse 32 that the word of his grace is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance amongst, among all those who are sanctified. Now, how does the word of God bring us to our eternal inheritance? There's the question. We're told the word of his grace is able to give you the inheritance. Well, we're told that he does that by building us up, number one, and giving us the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So there's two things that take place. The word builds us up on the one hand, and it sanctifies us on the other hand. So it builds us, meaning it makes us strong. It makes us strong in faith. And it also rips away the sin. It, the word of God is God's agent that he uses to convict us of sin and to show us our, 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 the sin in our life so that we can repent of it. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. So this is what God uses to sanctify his people. Of course, he uses his spirit as well. He uses Christian fellowship. He uses many things, but primarily he's going to use his word to sanctify you. And when I use the word sanctify, do you folks know what I mean by that? I should probably define it just to make sure we're all on the same page. The word sanctify literally means to set apart. And it's the very same root as the word holiness or holy. It means to be set apart. So the Christian is set apart. He's set apart from the old life of worldliness and sin and ungodliness. And God has set him apart from that old life to a brand new life. And actually in the Bible, uh, there, there are three types of sanctification. They're not called this in the Bible. I'm, I'm going to give you some theological terms just to think about. 
Sometimes when the Bible talks about being sanctified, it's talking about initial sanctification, which we would call regeneration or the new birth. For example, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified. Wait a minute, they have been? Yes. There is a sense in which we have been sanctified. God has taken us from the old life, and he set us apart through the new birth, given us a new heart and a new spirit, and we have been sanctified, we have been set apart to, the, to Christ and to this new life. That's the initial sanctification. But then there's also progressive sanctification, which means once I have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and I'm born again, then he progressively sets me more and more apart from sin and more and more apart to Christ. And then there's another well, I guess I should give you a reference for that. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is a good verse that describes progressive sanctification. We continue to cleanse ourselves from all defilements. And then there's another aspect of sanctification, and we might call this ultimate sanctification, because this is when our bodies are glorified, we see Christ face to face, we are with him forever, and we have been completely and perfectly set apart from all sin unto Christ, never to sin again. So we've got initial, progressive, and ultimate sanctification, and a, a good verse to describe the ultimate sanctification would be Ephesians 5. 25 to 27, husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, no wrinkle, not any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So there he's describing when, when the church is presented to Christ, face to face, we're not going to have any spot, any wrinkle, we're going to be holy and completely blameless, ultimately sanctified in, in its perfected state. Okay, so going back to Acts chapter 20, the word of God is given to sanctify, he says in verse 20, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, it's important for us to realize that only sanctified people are going to receive this inheritance. Right? Did you see that? The word of his grace is able to build you up and it's able to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified and none others. Only sanctified people are going to receive this eternal inheritance which includes the new earth and salvation and eternal life and the kingdom of God and all those beautiful expressions that we read about. So sanctification is not the ground of your salvation, it's the fruit. You don't, you don't uh, become holy in order to be saved, you live a holy life because you are. It's not something that you do in order to get saved, you do it because you are. It, the Spirit of God is working in your life. And a holy life is the evidence that you are saved. 
Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. So without this setting apart from sin to Christ, without that happening, you won't see the Lord. You won't be in heaven. You won't be in eternal glory. A holy life is a very, very powerful evidence that God has actually saved a person. And if a person continues to live in the same sins that he always lived in before his supposed conversion, he has no, he has no assurance that he's going to be in glory with Christ. A changed life is, is the evidence that God has given to show us that we are his. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying that a holy life is the necessary evidence for salvation and to know that you are actually headed for eternal glory. What about the thief on the cross? Right? Doesn't seem like he was a holy person, yet God saved him. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. But let's think about the thief on the cross. He confessed he was a sinner, right? And he deserved his punishment. He confessed that Jesus Christ was sinless. He confessed that Jesus was a king over a kingdom. And then he humbly implored Jesus to receive him. That sounds like a holy man to me. It sounds like a sanctified man. It sounds to me like he was actually converted and that the Lord had opened up his heart to truly receive Christ in his offices. So let's ask a few questions. Is the Holy Spirit using his word in your life to sanctify you? Is that happening? Do you find that actually experientially happening? Do you find him convicting you of certain things in your life that he wants you to change and showing you that. that. The word does it. The spirit and the word work together to do that. Can you see evidence of the work of the spirit in your life? You know, I really think one of the signs of a spiritually mature person is how quickly they repent when the Holy Spirit convicts them. If the Lord shows you something wrong in your life and you can put that off for days or weeks or months without doing anything about it, that shows me that there's spiritual immaturity. But if you immediately repent, he shows it to you and, you and you immediately go to him and you confess that, Lord, I know that's wrong. I know that's sin. Please eliminate that from my life. And you truly repent of, from the heart. That's a sign of a person who's becoming spiritually mature. A sanctified man is a man who loves Jesus and actually looks like Jesus. He's being conformed into the image of Jesus. So that's the second thing. To, be, to, to live in light of eternity means, number one, we're pursuing the word of God for our life. Number two, we're pursuing sanctification in our life. And number three, it means we're pursuing faithful stewardship. And the way Paul teaches this is by kind of giving his own example to these elders. Let, let's just read it again. Paul tells them, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, so there's a lot here to unpack. Number one. Faithful stewardship involves repenting of covetousness. Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. Now, what is covetousness? Can you, can you 
define it in one word? Greed. Yeah, I think that's a good way to define it. Greed. And what's a greedy person? It's a person who's never content. He always has to have more. He, he can never simply be content with what God has given him. So can you say that you don't covet, you don't, and the word covet it can also mean desire, that you don't have this strong desire after anybody else's money or cars or their home or the job that they have or their boat or their investments or their vacation homes or their spouse? Can you say, I'm, I'm content with, the Lord, with what the Lord has given to me? Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. The opposite of covetousness is contentment. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and covering, with, we, with these we shall be content. I really think one of the most common sins in America today is probably covetousness. Because we're such a materialistic people. We're such a prosperous people. We have so much in a material way that it's very easy for us to be covetous. Never content with what we have. Always wanting more wealth or more possessions or better than possessions than what we have now. Um, I think this, maybe in future generations, they'll look back on our generations, the 20th century, 21st century in America, and they'll be able to easily pinpoint that as our sin. But because we're living in the midst of it, it's like a blind spot to us. It's just kind of, we kind of accept it, right? It's an acceptable sin. It's a, it's a white sin that we, no one really pays any, any mind to. Did you know that in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 5.11, it says that covetousness is so serious that if a man is covetous, the rest of the church are to refuse to associate with him. He's to be put out of the church. So if one of us is covetous, we're greedy, then the church is to put them out and say, we, we can't associate with you until you repent of that sin in your life. That's how serious it is. In 1 Corinthians 6.10, it's listed alongside of fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, theft, drunkenness, reviling, and swindling. And we're told that a covetous man will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're covetous, the Bible says you won't be saved. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You're going to be lost. Covetousness is a sign that you're still in your sins. Colossians 3, 5 says that greed amounts to idolatry. So covetousness is a form of idolatry. We, we're worshiping our things, our possessions, our worship, and, and not worshiping the Lord. So that's the first thing that Paul puts his finger on is this idea of covetousness. And he's urging them to follow his example. Hey, I, I didn't covet any man's silver, gold, or clothes. Follow my example in this. Don't be a covetous individual. Secondly, faithful stewardship involves using our money and possessions to help other people. Notice Paul's work ethic in verse <clears throat> 34. He says, you yourselves know that these hands, probably holding up his hands to them, ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. So what he's saying there is that he, Paul never asked for a free handout. He wasn't a freeloader. He worked. He used his hands to work to provide for his needs, and not only his own needs, but he says, those who are with me. Who was with Paul? Well, that was his team. Wherever he went, he had people that were traveling with him. 
like Timothy or Titus. And there's a whole list of them in the New Testament. So Paul not only provided for his own needs, he provided for the people that were traveling with him. And that's why he worked to make tents. Now, he didn't always make tents. There were times when he would stop working because he had received an offering from one of the churches, and he would just preach the gospel. And he'd be very busy, involved in ministry. But then when the money ran out, the offerings are no longer there, he goes back to making tents. I worked, he says, with my own hands, ministering to my own needs. Verse 35 says, And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. So Paul says that he worked hard. Paul was a hard-working man. Did you know that diligence is actually a virtue and that laziness is sin? We just need to take note of that. Paul says, I worked hard in this manner. And if we do not work hard, if we're lazy, we need to repent. Because that doesn't reflect Christ. It doesn't reflect the kind of people that God wants us to be. He wants us to be productive people. He wants us to be busy ministering to other people. He wants us to work hard for our families, take care of our families' needs. And not only them, but to have money to help other people. Right? That's what Paul did here. He had money to help those who were with him. He bought their food. He provided lodging for them. Because he worked hard making these tents. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul could have lived off the churches he ministered to, but he says we didn't do that. We, uh, we worked night and day, so we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. So Paul didn't want to be a burden to the church, and so he worked. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Can you imagine that? How can you be worse than an unbeliever? Well, you can be a professing Christian who doesn't provide for your family. That's worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers will provide for their families. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So if any of us here are unwilling to work, don't, don't take your next meal. <laughs> you just go hungry. You have to fast. <laughs> okay, so that's a different story, Scott. You said, if you don't work, don't eat. Okay, well notice he says in verse 35, and um, everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. I, I don't think I can prove this, but I think he probably has in mind by weak, physically infirm people. Now, in, in that day, in, in that time period, let's take a widow, for example, an older widow. She's lost her husband. She's living alone. Uh, she's unable to work, to provide for herself. She might be considered weak or someone who's lame, like the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He can't even stand. He can't walk. There are certain people with disabilities that are unable to actually work. And Paul says, we need to help those people. We not only take care of our family's needs and for other ministry people that are helping us in the ministry, but even the weak, people, the poor, the, the people who cannot uh, work for one reason or another. So that's how I would answer that, Scott. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone would think that. 
We, we know your situation. Yeah. So the question shouldn't be, well, what do I feel like doing today? Well, I feel like sleeping into 11 or 12 o'clock. I think that's what I'm going to do. That shouldn't be our question. Our question should be, what does God want me to do today? Lord, what, what would you have me to do? What's on my plate? Would, show me what you would be pleased for me to do with my time and my energy today. And then just give yourself to that. So we find here Paul um, showing us that faithful stewardship involves repenting of covetousness. It involves using our money and possessions to help others. And then I also want you to notice Paul's stewardship of his money. How did Paul use his money? We, we've seen he, he provided for his own needs. He provided for the men traveling with him. He provided for the weak. And then he quotes these words from Jesus that we have nowhere in the Gospels, which is an interesting fact. He said, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that interesting? You don't read that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You read it in the book of Acts. And again, remember the word blessed means happy. Do you want to be a happy person? Learn to be a giving person. If you're always taking, you're not going to be a happy person. You're going to be a miserable person. You're going to always be thinking about yourself. You'll be a self-centered, selfish individual who can't think of anything but your own desires. Learn to be a giver, a generous giver, and you'll be a happy individual. Now, how do a lot of Christians use their money? And that's even a, a, an oxymoron, their money. Because if you're a Christian, it's not your money. Now, it's the money that the Lord has entrusted you with. But as Christians, we're called to be stewards. Remember, a steward didn't own any money. A steward was a servant who worked for a master. The master had entrusted his money to the steward. And he says, I want you to do business with this money until I come back. And then that steward was to manage the owner's money. He was to invest it the way the owner would want it invested. It wasn't his to do with whatever he wanted to. If he decided to take that money and go on a vacation to Tahiti or to the Bahamas or something, the, the owner is going to be upset. He's going to be angry when he gets back. Because it wasn't his money to do with what he wanted. So I, what I'm, I'm trying to impress upon you is that we are servants of Christ we're stewards of Christ. He has entrusted us with all kinds of things. He's entrusted us with all of our time, all of our energy, all of the gifts, spiritual gifts that you have. And he's also entrusted to you whatever money that you have, whatever home you have, whatever car vehicles you own, whatever possessions you have, they're entrusted to you. And we're to use those in the way God would want them to be used. We're, we're simply money managers. Okay, so maybe it would be better for us to try to delete the word my or mine from our vocabulary because we really can start to believe that these things are mine. We have to remind ourselves, wait, I'm, a, I'm a steward. I'm not the owner. I'm a steward. Like a steward of the court. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So elders are supposed to be good examples for the rest of the flock when it comes to how they handle their finances. 
First Timothy 3.3, 3, 3, when Paul's talking about the qualifications of elders, he says they have to be free from the love of money. And in Titus 1.7, they must not be fond of sordid gain. But what applies to elders applies to Christians at large. None of us should be fond of sordid gain or uh, have this love of money that grips us. We, we should be generous givers. So do, do, you, do you find that that fits with your own life? Are you a faithful steward of Christ? over the money and possessions that he's given to you? Are, you? are you using your home, whatever house you live in, are you using that for his glory? Do you invite people in? Are you hospitable? What about your vehicles? If you had an extra one, are you willing to loan that out or give it away if necessary to someone who needs a vehicle? I mean, remember in Acts chapter 2, none of them claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they all just shared them. They, hey, you need this? Go ahead. They were a big, loving family that just shared whatever they had. And that's what the church is to be like. We're to love each other, take care of each other. In Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, it says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, did you hear what he said there? Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. The first. I take that to mean that God gets the best. <laughs> so before I pay any other bill, I want to I use my money in the way God has directed. I want to give to the work of God. That, so I would, I, I've always encouraged Christians, make the very first check you write every month to, to the work of God, wherever that is. Whether that's, some of that's probably your local church, maybe some of it's other ministries that you like to support, but give to the work of God. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, and there's a promise associated with that. If you'll do that, your barns are going to be filled with plenty. Your vats will overflow with new wine. And of course, that was written to those under the old covenant where material blessings were the norm for faithfulness and obedience. But there's still a principle there. God takes care of those that are faithful in stewarding his possessions. So, three ideas I want you to take away with today. A commitment to the Word of God, the importance of being sanctified, continually set apart from sin to holiness, and then thirdly, being a faithful steward of whatever God has entrusted to you. Those three things. But before we leave the chapter, I think we need to read the very end of it because it's very poignant. 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him to the ship. This is a heart-wrenching scene now, just imagine the church there on the, on the beach. They're, they're kneeling down, they're praying, and then they just start to weep loudly. I mean, they, you, they didn't look at Paul as some austere, hard man. They loved Paul. They were grieved. They, they were never going to see his face again, and it broke their hearts. Some, something of that kind of love should be evident within the body of Christ. This, this love for one another... They, 
Like, if anybody here, if we knew that we would never see them again, they would never be part of our church, they'd never be in one of our services again. I was just thinking of this recently with one of the members here. I was thinking, if they never were a part of the church again, how much we would lose. They, they add such an important dimension to the life of our local church. And we'd be, we'd be the losers, such great losers, if they weren't part of our body. That's how they felt about Paul. They just loved him. And I think it's true that an elder who pours his, his life out in service to the church will make an impact on that church, and there will be a sense of loss when he leaves or is, dies or is no longer with them. It reminds me of uh, Charles Spurgeon who was a great Baptist preacher in London in the 1800s. He died in January of 1892. And when he did, all of London went into mourning. Nearly 60,000 people came to pay homage during the three days that his body was laid in state at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And 100,000 people lined the streets of London. There was a two-mile funeral parade down the streets of London as his body was being taken from the tabernacle to the cemetery. Flags flew at half-staff, and shops and pubs were closed that day. I mean, non-Christians closed down their shop because this man of God that all of London had come to love and revere for his ministry among them had gone to be with the Lord. So it's just my prayer that God would enable the elders, Jerome and myself, and any new elders that happen to arise in the future to be men who sacrificially serve the body and that we pour out our lives on behalf of the church and that God knits our hearts together in love. So if we're truly living in the light of eternity, I think we can be sure that we'll be pursuing God's word, we'll be pursuing sanctification, we're going to be pursuing faithful stewardship. So let, let the Lord speak to your heart if there's an one of those three areas that you need to pay attention to this morning, that he might be speaking to you, you know, there, there's this area in your life that you need to give attention. You need to repent of this or that. Let's allow him to speak to us and make some changes. Lord, please do that work that only you can do. May your spirit speak to our hearts, Lord. Show us the areas that you want us to change, that we'd be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.